On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. Padraig Otuma is a friend, teacher, and colleague to me and the work of On Being. But before that was true, we took a revelatory trip to meet him at his home in Northern Ireland, a place that has known violent sectarianism and has evolved, not to perfection and yet to new life and once unimaginable repair and relationship. Our whole world screams of fracture more now than when I sat with Padraig. Yet this conversation is a gentle, welcoming landing for pondering and befriending the hard realities we are given. As the global educator Karen Murphy, another friend of On Being and of Padraig, says, we are standing in the middle of a bridge and need to decide how we're going to walk across it together and in what direction. Let's have the humility and the generosity to step back and learn from these places that have had the courage to look at themselves and look at where they've been and try to forge a new path with something that resembles together. Right now, we should be taking these stories and these examples and these places and filling our pockets and our lungs and our hearts and our minds with them and learning deeply. That's what Padraig invites this hour. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Padraig Otuma is a theologian and poet and the author of an incandescent memoir, In the Shelter, Finding a Home in the World. He's the host of the On Being Studios podcast, Poetry Unbound, now in its fifth season. I sat with him in 2016 at the Corrymeela Community of Northern Ireland, of which he is a member and at that time was a leader. This is a place that has offered literal refuge and seeds of new life during and since the violent fracture that defined that country until the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. Padre grew up in the south in the Republic of Ireland near Cork. Yeah, so we're so happy to be here at Corimila, uh, all of us from On Being, and had such a beautiful couple of days in Belfast that have really, you know, really the reason we came is to interview you. So here we are. So, so how would you begin to reflect on the religious or spiritual background of your life? I was thinking about this yesterday because I had a little inkling that you yeah. might be asking the question. Um, <laughs> I mean, a very Irish Catholic background growing up in Cork. Um, Catholicism was part of everything. Do you know, prayers you said at night. We said the rosary in Irish at night as a family, um, in school, preparation for the sacraments. All of those things, they were just taken for granted. Um, when I was 11, there was a boy in the class who suddenly wasn't there anymore. And um, somebody said, I heard a rumor that he went to the Protestant school. And we were shocked. These, I mean, we weren't angels, but we were suddenly like, there has been one among us not telling us. And so there was just this sense that it was part of who you were in that sense. Yeah. Uh, what it meant to be Catholic, what it meant to be Irish, all of those things were all ingrained together. I think for me, a, a spiritual background for me is also um, language. I grew up with Irish and English. 
and uh, knowing two languages and knowing, I suppose, the language that came from the earth of this Ireland has been very important for me also. And that, to my mind, over years has grown in its significance in terms of understanding that that isn't merely um, having another language, but actually it goes deep into the bones. Mm-hmm. It goes deep into the, to the essence of what I have found to be important. You know, there's a lot of lovely and popular spiritual writing about the notion of here and be here now. And I mean, the subtitle of your book is In the Shelter is Finding a Home in the World. Um, You mentioned your favorite poem by David Wagner called Lost. And there are these two lines. Wherever you are is called here and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. And it seems to me that from a young age, you had a sense that there are many worlds within the world. Mm. But then you talk about moving to Belfast in 2003, which, and you had lived in many countries, right? Mm. You'd lived, where'd you lived at that point? Uh, Australia, Uh, Switzerland. I'd done some work in Uganda and the Philippines and Lithuania as well. Yeah, (laughs) and you come back here, it's not exactly where you grew up in no. Ireland, but one might think, especially I think one on the outside, might think you had come home and yeah. this would be a, he- a familiar here, yeah. where, which you would not have to treat as a powerful stranger, no. but it almost seems like it was your lesson. Oh, totally. And the complication for me was moving home to Ireland after those years away and suddenly being back in Ireland, being north of the border and realizing that some places that I went, people would say, oh, you're from Cork, we beat you in the hurling last week. And you're, you're just a local, just 250 miles down the road. But, you know, you're just local. Mm-hmm. And other people would say, oh, you're from Ireland. What's it like for you living in our country? Mm-hmm. And you're kind of going, I think I'm in my own country. I can read the etymology of the land, of this place names. I, I feel at home here. Yeah. Uh, and so suddenly this question of what is home was really complicated. And here, you, you hear that way when um, people are speaking here because Northern Ireland or the North of Ireland, these, they can be loaded terms. Sometimes you hear people saying, oh, today's a great day in this part of Ireland. And other people say, today's a great day in this part of the United Kingdom. So here yeah. is actually a complicated compromise also to be able to say what is happening right here, right now, even if it's not what you'd choose. Yeah. And I think that is one of the things that for me, spirituality, as well as conflict resolution is about, because so much of things is saying, I wish things were different. I wish I were somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I wish this were not happening. Mm-hmm. And what David Wagoner says is the place where you are is called here and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. And powerful strangers might be benevolent, <laughs> but mm-hmm. only might. Mm-hmm. Powerful mm-hmm. strangers can also be unsettling and troubling And powerful strangers can have their own hostilities and have their own way within which they cause you to question who you are and where you're from. And that is a a way within which, for me, the notion of saying hello to here requires a fairly robust capacity to tell the truth about what is really going on. And that can be very difficult. Mm -hmm. I want to draw this out a little bit just because I, I know people will be listening from the United States. And, you know, this place... um, you talk about discovering all the many subtle and not so subtle ways people have to signal, you know, which here they are from and yeah, not from. Totally. And that is where language is limited because language needs courtesy to guide it and an inclusion and a generosity that goes beyond precision and becomes something much more akin 
to sacrament, something much more akin to how is it you can be attentive to the implications of language for those in the room who may have suffered. It's the dark side of the power of totally. language. Oh my it's, God. It's right, how a single word, a name, oh, completely. can wound and exclude. You, you and I were talking last night, and I can't remember the details, but about how, um, I think also around this subject of the troubles, but it's equally true in my country right now, mm. you know, a single word, there, there are so many charged words and phrases that if someone introduces into the room, is going to set off this cascade of, um, of reactions. Yeah. And part of that reaction is, I know exactly what you're about. Mm. I, mean, you, I think we infuse words with a sense of who we are. <laughs> and so therefore, you're not just saying a word, you're communicating something that feels like your soul. And it mm -hmm. might even be your soul. Mm -hmm. So the choice of a particular word is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And there's what is in the text, and whether that's a sacred text or the text of somebody's life. And then there is the lenses through which you read and interpret that. Yes. And those lenses I find to be extraordinarily practical. There is the way within which there is a generosity of listening. And when somebody says something to try to figure out did I hear them correctly? Because sometimes mm -hmm. I've heard what I want mm -hmm. to hear mm -hmm. and I might be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. And that can be healing. You know, one time somebody came up to me after I'd spoken and said, that thing you said really helped me. And I went, what thing? Because I was curious. And they quoted something. I hadn't said it at all. <laughs> right, right, yeah. uh, I was delighted yeah. to take credit for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but and, I you, also... and you don't correct them because, no. they, because they heard something in exactly. what you said that was yeah. their translation. Totally. They probably heard themselves. You're right. And I right. was just lucky enough to happen to be in the way, yes. <laughs> wittering on about something, Irish yes. language or something, yeah. and they happened to hear what it was mm -hmm. that their life has been leading them to need mm -hmm. to say. And I think, mm -hmm. so sometimes it can be extraordinarily healing. Mm -hmm. It can be very harmful when it is that we have not listened well and go, well, when that person said that, and they might not have even have said that, they meant that. So there are at least two violations of language happening there. Yeah. And language has the capacity to communicate who we are. And so therefore, the interpersonal space and the encounter yeah. becomes really weakened. There's this language now in the states of trigger language, yeah. which really even the, the image itself is, yeah, is totally. violent. Yeah, it is. And I mean, I find myself in situations where sometimes I will say, just to let anybody know, you know, like for Cahill was my friend who took his own life. Do you know, I, I, I really appreciated if somebody said something about suicide in advance of a conversation in the few years after that. I thought it would just be a few months, but it was a few years really yeah. when I just thought I won't be able to cope with the ocean of everything that will happen here. Bec partly because I was living so far away and I, you know, I couldn't come to any even reconciling relationship with grief because mm -hmm. I was living on the other side of the planet. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I can really respect and I've been the benefit of times when people have said that. But the complication is, is that life comes with no trigger warning. Things yeah. happen yeah. out of the blue. Something happens and suddenly, with no preparation, you find yourself in the middle of something that you didn't wish to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why, for me, here is really important because that's the space for when you are in a situation for which nothing has prepared you to have the language of here. It is not gentle. It's not even consoling. It just might be part of the truth. Mm -hmm. And that can be healing, to simply tell part of the truth. 
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, in Northern Ireland, with theologian, poet, and social healer, Padraig Otuma. One thing you say, out of all this experience you've had of being with people in, in charged situations, having um, difficult conversations, and you know, this is an important truth, and it's really hard to take in um, that most people do what seems reasonable to them at the time, most of the time. I mean, just that—that that the people who may be so offending us and may seem frightening to us are actually doing what seems reasonable to them. Yeah. And it's not always safe to decide to be curious about that. No. But I think there's a big place where, where it, it is safe. It's just going to be really uncomfortable. Totally. And I recognize that sometimes people will need to extend their generosity to me saying mm-hmm. he thinks he's doing what's reasonable to him at the time mm-hmm. you know right and right it works in both directions it works in all those directions yes. and so it's a really important thing to do i think i mean probably most of us learn most of our lessons for our wider public life from the private life yes. and i suppose for years and years i worked in a really rich faithful loving christian community environment where nobody had a clue that I was gay. And so when people don't know or think that they that there is nobody around to hear the kind of things that they're saying, people say some pretty harsh things. But they loved me, I knew that. And mm-hmm. I loved them also. Mm-hmm. And I suppose one of the things that being closeted for many years helped, actually. Not that this is good advice, but it is wisdom, retrospectively. It helped me to understand some of the dynamics that were happening underneath the kind of public things people said in order to then think when it comes to having conversations about anything that divides us, that understanding itself is a really wise thing. Understanding doesn't mean agreeing. Right. Uh, But I think sometimes when you ask a question in charged situations to try to understand a narrative that you might find intolerable, Mm -hmm. people think, well, you're being complicit in that by giving that. And I think in in situations like here where people have had so many experiences of terrible difficulty to understand might actually help us to heal. Yeah. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it that you Right, agree. it doesn't mean agreeing, it doesn't mean no. condoning. No. But when you said our words, they, they hold so much from us, they hold hope, our hopes and fears. Yeah. Do you remember years ago, I interviewed Richard Mao, a Christian theologian who... Um, what were you speaking I always we forget the names, of, but I always remember um, the conversations. Well, we were speaking about gay marriage back, oh, when, yes. yeah, back yeah. when that was a distant, remote yeah, yeah. possibility, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> maybe eight, hmm. nine years ago, yeah, yeah. which is amazing. It's to very think recent, about. really. In some and so way. he was somebody who, um, whose theology, whose reading of the Bible leads him to believe that this is not something that sh- the church should uh, sanctify, and yet who understands that... Um, the measure of Christian fidelity is about much more than a mm. position you take on an issue. Yeah. And um, has tried to walk that, and live in that tension. But he, one of the things he said, and it, you know, you've kind of put a theoretical framework around that, is we have to stop engaging on this in terms of, by calling each other names. Yeah. And we have to start, we have to figure out if we can inquire and get curious and connect on a human level about 
you know, what are the hopes and fears we are bringing to this? Totally. But that's a question we hardly know how to ask once we've turned something into an issue. Yeah. And it becomes a very, very difficult question to curate in the public space. Oh, yeah. Because suddenly to ask it is to be complicit. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's why there are need for really robust private conversations about public matters. Mm -hmm. But there does need to be the stage then when we go, what can this mean for the wider civilization? How mm -hmm. is it that we can say, because ultimately that becomes a way of embedding fear. And I would like that public conversation can be a, a way within which we can talk about things um, with less fear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Good Friday Agreement from 1998, um, limited as all those treaties are, has been something that ushered in something quite extraordinary. And one of the things that you hear people speaking about regularly is to say that in perpetuity, the Good Friday Agreement... And um, this, is the, this was the, the peace the agreement peace, at the end, peace, yeah, to yes. bring uh, 30 years of uh, conflict and murder and separation to some kind of robust framework for moving forward into a better peace and a better living together. And the Good Friday Agreement guarantees that people born here can have access to passports British, Irish, either or both. And that that piece of language is a really important piece of language and it introduces softness and more than just an either or option into mm -hmm. something that could have been tense. Mm -hmm. And I've heard people who find themselves to go, that is challenging, but it is also a guarantee. And I think that's a really important thing to recognise. And often our public discourse, whatever the issue that's dividing us, it needs a wise framing, it needs careful questioning, mm -hmm. and it needs a way within which we can speak about these things, recognising that words have impact. Mm -hmm. And often if people use unwise words, they return to their intention. Well, I didn't mean that, I didn't mean that, right. without paying attention to impact. Right, somewhere you said, um, the awful truth is that our mixed intentions sometimes have the unmixed impact of terror. Mm, totally. Mm -hmm. And I, we hear that at Carmela all the time. People who would say, I heard something on the radio where um, immigrants or yeah. Protestants or Muslims or whoever, British people, Irish people, whatever that gathering narrative is where somebody says something about that and actually it causes fear it causes people maybe to close their doors to feel a little bit more worried and when you begin to feel that you begin to look for it and the awful thing is that you might find it then even if it isn't there mm -hmm. and that can cause a real limitation in mm -hmm. a life and that fails us <laughs> mm -hmm. and that really does fail us so the question is is how is it that language simple language i don't mean complicated language that you need a, you know a dictionary to plow your way through i mean plain good wise language that can be the thing that might help us mm -hmm. do you do you want to read any any a poem that um along those lines something come yeah. to mind there's one um so one of the complications of here is, you know, do you call it Northern Ireland or the North of Ireland? Mm -hmm. And in a bid to irritate everybody, I wrote a poem called The Northern of Ireland. It is both a dignity and a difficulty to live between these names, perceiving politics in the syntax of the state. And at the end of the day, the reality is that whether we change or whether we stay the same, these questions will remain. Who are we to be with one another? And how are we to be with one another? And what to do with all those memories of all those funerals? And what about those present whose past was blasted far beyond their future? I wake 
You wake, she wakes, he wakes, they wake, we wake and take this troubled beauty forward. Hmm. There's another one that happened. If I would do my yeah, this, yeah, sure. this is just a short one. Um, the poem is called The Pedagogy of Conflict. When I was a child, I learned to count to five. One, two, three, four, five. But these days, I've been counting lives, so I count one life, one life, one life, one life, one life. Because each time is the first time that that life has been taken. Legitimate target has 16 letters and one long, abominable space between two dehumanizing words. After a short break, more with Padraig Otuma. On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the latest discoveries in the science of hope and optimism, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, the first public conversation I ever had in Northern Ireland with Padraig Otuma, a poet, theologian, and esteemed conflict resolution practitioner. He is a longtime member and was at that time a leader of the Corrymeela community, which helped bring peace to Northern Ireland after generations of violence. It remains a beacon and refuge for people around the world. Padraig is the author of books of poetry and a memoir, In the Shelter, Finding a Home in the World. I want to keep going on this work of, uh, of, of this wisdom you have, and actually this wisdom this place has about understanding who we are to each other and how we are to each other. Mm. Because as I've said a couple of times in these days that we've been in Northern Ireland, it's very striking to me that we're in a place that has in living memory moved away from sectarianism, while at this particular moment in history, in these early years of the 21st century, many places, including my country, feel like they are gravitating towards sectarianism. Mm. But I, I, I want to talk about um, the fact that you're gay. and um, Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, And how, uh, here's the thing, Padraig, that really strikes me, reading you and reading about the work you've done around this, and also just how you've inhabited this part of your identity in the work you do, whether it's the focus or not, and it, I think, rarely is the focus. Um, You are in an interesting position, because this is culturally a time 
when there have been these huge, transformative, revolutionary shifts. Mm. I mean, Ireland voting yes, to... I know. I know. wept for a day. You wept yeah. for a day. And the Republic of Ireland <laughs> voting to legalize same-sex marriage. But I think mm. but this Catholic country, I mean, mm. before it happened in the United States, I yeah. believe. And yet, because of who you are and, and where, where you're here is from year to year, you are right in the thick of this, the, the spectrum of how this yeah. encounter, this awakening. Yeah. So you've, you've been in places like Uganda where you are, in fact, talking about these things, about sexual identity and how churches respond to that, mm. where you have very actively stayed in the closet Mm. Um, in fact, felt that you would be, un- I were pretty sure you would be unsafe. Yeah, yeah, it was more than just feeling, it was just right. the truth. You were, right, right. So you would, yeah. so, and, and you know, you talked about this Christian community that you were part of mm. for many years where you felt deeply loved. Mm. Was that the same one that also tried, yeah. Un- yeah. made you undergo exorcisms? Yeah, totally. Um, and reparative therapy too. And I, I mean, that mm-hmm. is an important part of my story that mm-hmm. for a year I went weekly to reparative therapy mm-hmm. or change therapy or some way within which somebody who'd done a weekend course somewhere thought that they could call themselves a counsellor now. And I was 19 and frightened and yeah. thought this might help. And I was told this is the kind of thing that will help. And what, what I mean, this is a slight precursor, but language was the thing that saved me because I remember at one point plucking up the courage to say to this therapist or whatever he was being called professionally, um, I'm not even sure I want to want to have sex with a woman because he was, it was all, yeah. it was so erotically focused in the sense of the, the kind of the mechanics of what success yeah. would look like. Right, right. And that was the awful thing. And I was trying to put that into language. And he said, that's because you're saying really poor sentences. And he goes, <laughs> what you should be, and little did he know, the Egypt, but he, <laughs> um, he said, you shouldn't be saying, have sex with a woman. You should say, I want to give sex to a woman. And I remember thinking, that is a terrible sentence. Yeah. Like, in terms of a conjugation of a verb into a sentence, that, that fails. So, and I had been through three exorcisms in the year previous to that and had gone to this. I used to get the number 16 bus from the north side to the south side of Dublin, petrified and leave burdened, like with a damp blanket of dismay on me. Mm. And, and I said to him, that's not a good sentence. I never went back. And that was the exorcism. It was amazing. And I remember getting back on the yeah. number 16 bus, elated with delight. And I had no one to tell because to tell anybody mm-hmm. about this exorcism into freedom would have been to have caused complication in terms yeah. of that. And so I, I'm really, it's, it's important to recognize, I think, when it comes to LGBT people's identities, causation, cure and consequence are some of the public fixations mm-hmm. around people who are cautious about um, the inclusion or the, the pace right. of change. Uh, but I don't, I am, I am bored often by ways within which it can turn into something where I have received insult, where I then give insult back. I have never had a situation where that's been fruitful. Uh, mm-hmm. Much and all as it might feel lovely for me afterwards or mm-hmm. somewhat vindicating, mm-hmm. it isn't fruitful. It doesn't mm-hmm. help to bring about mm-hmm. change. So I suppose I've been really interested in curating spaces of dialogue um, here in Ireland, in Scotland, in the States, in Australia, in England, uh, as well as in Uganda, where people who believe very deeply that, they, that their faith and their social conscience causes them to be concerned, 
that there is the possibility within the Gospels for us to be brought into a deeper kind of belonging with each other. So in Uganda, we looked at this text of the woman in Luke chapter 7 who makes her way into the house of Simon the Pharisee. And she was um, not welcome, but she actually did the duties of the host. And it's amazing because Jesus would have been lounging on the floor. And then in Greek, it says he turned to her and spoke to Simon, who would have been the host. So his head was now to the host, turning to this woman. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? And what do you see? Mm. And these are the ways within which the gospel text calls us to look around us in an amazing way. And once in one of these encounters, there was an amazing situation where about nine or ten of us in a room, people who had chosen to come, and to, they came from fairly... Um, with deep caution about lesbian and gay, bisexual, mm -hmm. trans people. And where was this? This is in Belfast. In Belfast, yeah. And at the end of the two-day encounter, one of the men who had, he had chosen the word fundamentalist for himself to describe himself as a Christian. Um, he said, I have a question for all the homosexuals in the room. Part of me wanted to go, oh, we don't really like that word. But anyway, <laughs> I thought, let's hear the question first. because you know, uh, And he says, I want to know how many times since we've met together in the last while have my words bruised you? And um, somebody next to me went, ah, you're lovely. You're very nice. You know? And he said, no, don't patronize me. How many times have my words bruised you? And the fella next to me started to count one, two, three, four. And then he goes, I've given up after the first hour. And then this man who had gone to the edges of his own understanding and asked others to help populate that edge with information mm -hmm. and insight said, are you telling me that... It's painful for you to be around me. And somebody went, a woman in the room went, yeah, it is. And he was the one who chaplained himself into that space. And I couldn't have made that happen right. as the facilitator of the room. I could, like if I had said, do you realize that your words are bruising? You know, yeah. none of that would have been sufficient yeah. because what he was being brought into was the transformative power of human encounter mm -hmm. in relationship. We were on a residential and curiously, he had asked, um, we were talking a few nights previously about um, television. And he was saying that his absolute favorite show was this political show on the BBC uh, on a Thursday night. And I said, oh, my partner produces that. And he was like, what? And then he went, he went through all the names because he's that kind of a geek that he knew right, all the names all the of the name, production right, team. Right, right. And he mentioned him by name, mentioned Paul by name. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly he was like, what? Do they enjoy it? And he had all this information that he wanted to ask mm -hmm. and curiosity unfolded mm -hmm. between us. Mm -hmm. And I think that and shared cups of tea was one of the things that contributed mm -hmm. to the fact that he demonstrated. And I was converted by his capacity to ask that question. I, I came away just going, I want in the ways in which I am the perpetrator of real hostility and lack of understanding and uh, lazy thinking. I want to be someone like him who says, Tell me what it's like to hear the way I talk, because mm -hmm. I need to be changed. Mm -hmm. I went also to be converted in terms right. of that. But, you know, um, I think that also speaks to another idea that, that you and I have discussed and explored together, and that's come up in these days in Northern Ireland, which is the urgency of creating spaces where that kind of human connection can be made. Mm. Even just that normalizing thing of, oh, I know the TV show that your partner works on, mm. which wasn't about the issue, but no, it flowed no. into totally. the relationship. Yeah. But also where you could come to that moment of conversion for both of you. I mean, that Corimila is a place, right? Is the creation of a place where yeah. 
people whose lives were threatened during the troubles literally fled here, here physically to be safe. Mm, yeah. I think what you're talking about is so relevant and resonant for American life right now. And this question of getting the right people in the room. Mm. How, how would you start to um, give some counsel on that from sure. what you know? Karimela's practice for all those years has been a, to be a place of story and that within that the society, the religion, the politics, the pain are all held within those stories. They don't exist mm -hmm. in an abstract way. Mm -hmm. These concepts like civic society exist in people, next to people, next to people, next to people. And sometimes that's a very fractious experience. And one of the things that I think is really important for lots of organisations of goodwill, and Carmilla is one of them amongst many in Northern Ireland, it's a really important thing to say, um, is the recognition to say, um, where are the limitations of our understanding? Do we have friendships? And I really appreciate when people contact. So the question often is, is to say, are there human connection points where quietly you can say to people, can you help me understand this? Yeah. And maybe then you'll participate in this fantastic argument of being alive in such a dynamic way that it's great fun or really enlivening. And you can have a really robust disagreement. And that is the opposite of being frightened of fear mm -hmm. because you can create that. Mm -hmm. When Corrie Miller began in 65, Somebody who didn't have a great understanding of Irish, old Irish etymology had said, oh, Carimila means hill of harmony. And people were like, how lovely, amazing <laughs> hill of harmony. Isn't that delightful? And um, about 10 years later, somebody who actually knew what they were talking about when it came to old Irish etymology said, well, it's kind of like place of lumpy crossings. <laughs> <laughs> And by that stage, there have been 10 years right. of all and people are like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> the place can hold us so because yeah. we haven't been great at harmony, apart from the occasional yeah, song. Yeah, well, who is? Yeah, uh, <laughs> but it, that gives. Yeah. And people do sometimes say when we're in community discussions, mm. say this is a bit of a lumpy crossing for us. Mm. And it gives space and permission to say, mm. yeah, it is. And actually, that's even the naming of that is part of what might help us and be mm -hmm. a, a lovely, wise understanding of what, what success is. Because mm -hmm. that in itself is a really good place to get to, mm. to say the here is that this is difficult. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today in Northern Ireland with theologian, poet, and social healer, Padraig Otuma. You mentioned at one point that, I, I think you say that you didn't love the book, The Zen, what is it? Zen and the Art of Motorcycle, the Art of Motorcycle yeah, Maintenance, yeah. but that there's this word. One lovely word. One yeah. word. I've been reading Henry Nouwen and I thought when I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, I will become as wise as Henry Nouwen. And then I read the book and I was like, I'm bored. <laughs> uh, partly because I don't understand motorcycles. Yeah. So I suppose that was the beginning. I should have paid attention to that. Um, but, but this one, this one yeah. word, mu. Mu. There's M -U. a Buddhist concept where if you're asking a poor question, uh, if a question is being asked to go, are you this or that? that what Robert Persig says is that you can answer, according to his telling of uh, the Zen tradition, you can answer with this word mu, M-U, which means unask the question because there's yeah. a better question to be asked. The question that's asking is limiting and you'll get no good answer from anything. Mm -hmm. this, this question fails us, never mind subsequent answers. And I think that's a really delightful way to understand the world. 
And I think questions about Jesus sometimes that are posed in our public rhetoric about Christianity. What do we do here? What do we do there? Is this right? Is that right? Am I allowed to be gay and Christian, for instance, was the question that plagued me for years. And I um, think that in a certain sense, we're being told by God, perhaps in silence in our prayers, moo, because there's better <laughs> questions to ask. Yeah. And asking a wiser question might unfold us into asking even more wiser questions, whereas certain kinds of questions just entrench fear. Yeah, well, also be. wiser questions will elicit wiser responses. Yes, yeah, you're right. And yeah. so that, that, will, that will lead us together down a different road. Totally, and maybe towards each other and into human encounter and into the mm -hmm. possibility of saying, I will learn something from somebody. Yeah. I used to be a school chaplain in West Belfast and... I trained and I did some Ignatian spirituality training and we used to do um, reflections on um, uh, prayer reflections with 11-year-old West Belfast, hilarious young people. Uh, and we'd gather around and light a candle and have a prayer bowl and, you know, just create a little bit of um, quiet and then would do a, a, an imaginative Ignatian reflection where the young people would take a walk with Jesus. And um, it was only a year that I had that job. And that year, I, I loved that job because every day I thought, I am going to meet Jesus as curated and narrated by 11-year-olds from <laughs> West Belfast. And they were hilarious, you yeah. know. One young girl said, yeah, Jesus came walking over the water wearing um, a purple tutu and a coconut bra. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> That's not the Jesus that I know. But there, and then for, they had to make a drawing for the bishop. And she said, I'm not very good at drawing. I was like, thank God, because I'd like to keep my job. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe but, it was for me. You know, the other, the other kinds of story, and I think these were younger kids in a different setting in which you were teaching, mm. you know, you also got this question, Padre, does God love us? Oh, yes. Yes. That way, yeah, that was, yeah. A, I was actually in the same job. So why did he create Protestants? Was he, yeah, I mean, she was hilarious. She was one of my favorites. She was amazing at football and she just said everything that she thought. Mm -hmm. I was wittering on about something and she was clearly bored and she goes, Padraig, answer me a question. I went, okay. And she goes, God loves us, right? I went, okay. She was setting out her premise. Uh, and, <laughs> and then I said, okay, she I'm with you. And then she, yeah, totally. And then she goes, and God made us, right? Okay. I knew that these weren't the really important questions. And then she goes, answer me this. Why did God make Protestants? I said, you have to tell me a bit more about your question. And she goes, mm. well, they hate us and they hate him. And because I knew she was brilliant at football, I said, um, I know a lot of Protestants that would want you on their football team. And she went, really? Because how she, in that little half comedic, half frightening incident, is telling a story of an entire society because yes. she has been educated yes. and she is reflecting something. And this was only this is two thousand and eleven, so this was thirteen years after the Good Friday Agreement had been signed. Mm -hmm. She hadn't been born when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, and nonetheless, these are ways in which these stories. And you mentioned sectarianism earlier on, and one of the best definitions of sectarianism comes from a book by Cecilia Clegg and Joe Lichty, and they say sectarianism is belonging gone bad. Belonging gone, gone bad. bad. Uh, and they, in that book, you, you mention... Mm, um, the scale of sectarian danger. The scale, danger, yeah. and so what is that? And the scale? The scale for them begins, uh, there's about 14 or 15 points. The first part of the scale is going, you're different, I'm different. Okay. Fine. And the 15th point is, you're demonic. 
mm-hmm. and that's the word they use, and all the scales down to that. One of the pieces and, that and, they and, highlight. And, and the farther down that scale you go, the, the more violence. The more danger, yeah. Dangerous it, it and becomes. the more you justify. Because if somebody is the devil, well then, mm-hmm. you get rid of them. You know? mm-hmm. One of the scales in that is, um, in order for me to be right, it is important that I believe that you are wrong. And ways within which that is really alive to mm-hmm. how it is. And I think what you've been saying in terms of recognizing that um, fragile and limited as our process has been here, Northern Ireland has transformed itself. Mm-hmm. And involved in that has been politicians and peacemakers and victims and perpetrators and all these limited words like mm-hmm. that. People mm-hmm. who've said, I was caught up in something and have now given extraordinary contributions. So many people of goodwill and courage and protest saying mm-hmm. we can find a way to live well together. Mm-hmm. And this can be the hope. And that's very hopeful it to is. think of that you have collectively, including people who were violent, sure, who yeah. were, ter- you know, terrorists is one of those words, but yeah. um, who actually collectively moved from that place on the spectrum of demonizing others yeah. back towards not necessarily agreeing or yeah. loving in terms of feeling jubilant in each yeah. other's presence, but, but making that move um, and giving committed guarantees to the other's safety mm. and finding ways within which we can say this can be a place where our disagreements will happen in a tone that is wiser, in a tone that is safer. Mm. And I think that's a really helpful place to be in. I mean, because the implication that to agree with each other um, is what guarantees safety is immediately um, undermined by every experience of family. <laughs> like, <laughs> family, yes, yes. like, we just know that. And <laughs> friendships, that's what we know. Yeah. Um, agreement has rarely been the mandate for people who love each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe on some things, but actually, when you look at some people who are if lovers and friends, you go, actually, they might disagree really deeply on things, but there's mm-hmm. somehow, I like the phrase, the argument of being alive. Or in Irish, when you talk about trust, there's a beautiful phrase from West Kerry, where you say, um, you're the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore. And it's so physical, that beautiful understanding. And you can find that with each other, even when you think different things about what jurisdiction we are or should be in. You can find you are the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore with each other. And that is soft and kind language, but it is so robust and it is part of the firmament that upholds what it means to be human. Mm. That is Mm. what we can have with each other. And we are failed by um, headlines that just demonize the other and are lazy. And where I might read a headline about myself and go, I don't recognize myself in the language that's been spoken about there. We're failed by that. Mm. But we are upheld by something that has the quality of deep virtues, of kindness, of goodness, of curiosity, and the, injo- the jostle and enjoyment of saying, yeah, we disagree. But that curates something and in a psychological context contains something mm. that actually is uh, a vessel of deep safety and community. Mm. Mm. Okay, I'm going to skip over all of my other brilliant questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I just want to read this, um, the, this on the power of the idea of belonging. It creates and undoes us both. And you also wrote, if spirituality does not speak to this power, then it speaks to little. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I'd love for you to do is read the very end of your book. Um, and I have it, or you have it? Thank you. Okay, so it will be starting at... 
Yeah, neither I nor the oh, poets yeah, yeah. I love. Sure. Neither I nor the poets I love found the keys to the kingdom of prayer, and we cannot force God to stumble over us where we sit. But I know that it's a good idea to sit anyway. So every morning I sit, I kneel, waiting, making friends with the habit of listening, hoping that I'm being listened to. There I greet God in my own disorder. I say hello to my chaos, my unmade decisions, my unmade bed, my desire and my trouble. I say hello to distraction and privilege. I greet the day and I greet my beloved and bewildering Jesus. I recognize and greet my burdens, my luck, my controlled and uncontrollable story. I greet my untold stories, my unfolding story, my unloved body, my own love, my own body. I greet the things I think will happen and I say hello to everything I do not know about the day. I greet my own small world and I hope that I can meet the bigger world that day. I greet my story and hope that I can forget my story during the day and hope that I can hear some stories and greet some surprising stories during the long day ahead. I greet God and I greet the God who is more God than the God I greet. Hello to you all, I say, as the sun rises above the chimneys of North Belfast. Hello. I, I just love those pages. I, loved, I love that image of you praying and how you pray. And yeah. I do love praying, um, like prier from French, to ask. And what I love about that word is it doesn't require belief. <laughs> it just requires uh, a recognition of need. And I think the recognition of need is something that brings us to a deep common language about what it means to be human. Mm. Uh, and if you don't, if you're not in a situation where you know need, well, then you're lucky. But you will be. <laughs> they won't last for too long. Need is happening in so many ways, in so many levels, in people and in societies and in communities. And I suppose I um, really think that prayer is also not only naming or asking, but just saying hello to what is and trying to be brave trying to be courageous in that situation and trying to be generous to your own self also to go you know here's a day when I feel um, intimidated or here's a day I'm just waiting for the end of it or here's a day when I have huge expectations of delight you know because those can also be troubling and Ignatius yes. um, cautions people to have um, active detachment recognizing the things that will cause you great distress as well as things that can cause you great delight can be things that distract you from what he calls your principle and foundation, which I, I suppose I ultimately understand as love, uh, and that that is the principle and foundation of the, the human project, of the human story, of the human encounters, to move toward each other in love and to find a way. Like in Caramilla, we talk about living well together, that that is the vision we have, to live well together. That doesn't mean to agree. That doesn't mean that everything will be perfect. It means to say that in the context of imperfection and difficulty, we can find the capacity and the skill, as well as the generosity and courtesy to live well together. And I think by in the morning times, I say hello to all those things. And then I try to say hello a little bit to what I know won't happen. And in that sense, prayer becomes a way within which you cultivate curiosity and the sense of wonder so that, you know, I'll be returning back to this and can say hello tomorrow to something that I wouldn't have even known about today. And that's how I understand prayer in that way. Mm -hmm. Every now and then Jesus shows up and says something interesting. <laughs> <laughs>
through the gospel. I read the gospels in Irish too, because yeah. there's something about reading the text in Irish. It's a lovely thing to do in that sense, mm-hmm. uh, because you realise the way when these translators have found a way to say something that really unfolds something really delightful. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's a joy, Krista. It's a Thank joy. Padraig Otuma is the host of On Being Studios' podcast, Poetry Unbound. Season 5 is now underway wherever you like to listen. His books include A Prayer Book, Daily Prayer with the Corimila Community, A Book of Poetry, Sorry for Your Troubles, and a poetic memoir, In the Shelter, Finding a Home in the World. And you can already pre-order his newest book, coming out in October, Poetry Unbound, 50 Poems to Open Your World. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.